You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. We were again formed in line of battle and went forward. We soon came upon one of the most interesting and stirring scenes of war. A Texas brigade had just charged a line of Federals uniformed as Zouavs, red skull cap, blue jackets, and red breeches with white gaiters. Those red clothes must have inflamed the Texans, as the red flag is said to inflame the wild bull, for I never but once during the war saw such slaughter as we witnessed while advancing over this ground. From the line of battle where the Texans first struck them, all along the grassy slope down which they were driven, these red-breeched troops lay scattered in every direction. A little further on we saw the Texans who had stopped the pursuit. They were in high spirits and cheered us as we swept rapidly on. Their loss had been slight, but they had gotten into great disorder in the chase. I remember seeing all their battle flags in a huddle. Private Westwood A. Todd, 12th Virginia Infantry, Mahone's Brigade. I have just arrived from Richmond. I was taken prisoner while attending to your dear husband's wounds. It is my painful duty to inform you, dear madam, that your husband is dead. He fell near me while doing all that a brave man could do to hold his men to the support of a battery. He fell from his horse, his foot fast in the stirrups. His horse was about to run with him in this condition, but I caught him and took his foot out of the stirrup and laid him on the ground. I found him to be severely wounded high up on the thigh, the ball rupturing the main artery. With the strap the lieutenant colonel gave me, I succeeded in stopping the hemorrhage of the wound. I was in the act of tightening it when I looked behind me. I found the rebels had charged past the battery and were within two rods of us, These passed over us without noticing me. They fought over us for about fifteen minutes, in which time your husband was wounded again in the same leg below the knee. They would not help me take him to some surgeon. They made me leave him. When he said, Tell my wife she will never blush to be my widow. I die for my country in the old flag. One of my men was called to bury the dead and he reported having buried a Lieutenant Colonel J.A. McLean of the 88th Pennsylvania Volunteers, and this convinces me that your husband is dead. I sympathize deeply with you in your loss, and hope God will bless you and aid you in raising your little ones. Lieutenant William J. Rannells, 77th Ohio Infantry, N.C. McLean's Brigade. Thanks for downloading episode 179 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. 
And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to pick right back up where we left off last week with the story of the Battle of Second Manassas. So without further ado... On the afternoon of the third day of the battle, Saturday, August 30th, 1862, Longstreet's juggernaut rolled up the Federal left flank, crushing all resistance in its path. Union defeat seemed a certainty. Only the magnitude of that defeat remained in doubt. As Longstreet's attack approached Chin Ridge, the rebel spearhead encountered a single enemy brigade, Ohio men under Colonel Nathaniel C. McLean. The colonel had only four regiments, some 1,200 men, but they were now the only organized resistance between the rebels and Henry Hill, and McLean was determined to buy enough time for John Pope to respond to the emergency. McLean's men made a valiant stand, staving off the attack by the Texas Brigade and Nathan Shanks Evans, South Carolinians, for a crucial half hour. In that precious 30 minutes, Irvin McDowell was able to rush the brigades of Zealous Tower and John Stiles across the Warrenton Turnpike and onto Chin Ridge. Tower arrived first, just as McLean's men were finally breaking in the face of James Kemper's division of Confederates, which had wheeled north and was sweeping past the Chin House. Tower's regiments came into line beside the four guns of the 5th Maine Light Artillery and opened a heavy fire on the rebel masses. The quote I read at the top of the episode was about the mortal wounding of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph McLean, commander of the 88th Pennsylvania. The 88th was part of Tower's brigade, and McLean fell there on Chin Ridge while his men were desperately trying to hold back the onrushing Confederates. McLean, who was no relation to Ohio Brigade Commander Nathaniel McLean, was called Uncle Joe by his men, and he was an immensely popular officer who made a habit of traipsing alongside the men of his regiment while they were on the march, telling jokes, singing a song, or launching into an impromptu lecture on whatever subject the men wanted to hear. Despite his upbeat attitude, McLean's consuming desire was to be back home in Pennsylvania with his wife and children. His letters betrayed his fear that he would never return to them. Weeks earlier, he had gently suggested to his wife that she look into the details of pensions for the families of fallen officers. On August 22nd, in what would be his last letter, he told her, Kiss my dear little ones for me, and assure yourself I will do all I can to save myself, consistent with honor. As a lieutenant from one of the Ohio regiments on Chin Ridge tried to aid the mortally wounded McLean, Tower's line collapsed as Kemper's rebels, with Montgomery Corse's brigade in the lead, linked up with Hood's increasingly disorganized brigades and fought their way onto Chin Ridge, overrunning the guns of the 5th Maine Light Artillery. Stiles' Federals came to Tower's support, but they were struck on their left flank by two more of Kemper's brigades, and Stiles' men, in turn, began to also give way. John Pope had at last realized the extent of the unfolding disaster on his left, and he ordered Irvin McDowell to continue shuffling units to shore up the collapsing flank. Meanwhile, Pope would try to patch together a last-ditch defensive line atop Henry Hill, 
some three-quarters of a mile east of Chin Ridge. If that new line could hold until dark, Pope would stand a good chance of avoiding the total destruction of his army. In a last effort by the Federals to hold on to the strategic crest of Chin Ridge, two of Franz Siegel's brigades were shifted south and thrown into the fray. Had Stonewall Jackson sallied forth from his line on Stony Ridge, Siegel wouldn't have been able to carry out this movement. But Jackson was slow to commit his battered units to support Longstreet's charge. As it was, Siegel's troops pushed south across the Warrenton Turnpike onto Chin Ridge through a hail of rebel artillery fire that killed the commander of the leading Federal Brigade, Colonel John A. Coltis, and tore gaps in the blue-clad ranks. The Yankee reinforcements halted the Confederate advance only briefly, but then another of Longstreet's divisions, David R. Jones' men, further extended the rebel line, and the embattled Federals on Chin Ridge were flanked on their left, and this time there would be no stopping the Confederate juggernaut. By 6 p.m., as still more of Longstreet's brigades swung into action against the Union line, the defenders of Chin Ridge were at last compelled to yield. With their units shattered, thousands of soldiers in blue streamed eastward in chaotic retreat. But the struggle for Chin Ridge had cost the Confederates heavily in men and organization. The capture of the key position represented a notable success for Hood's and Kemper's divisions, but that success came with immense losses. It also cost Lee and Longstreet time, a commodity precious to them at the moment, because only an hour or so of daylight remained. Pope's left had been crushed, and only Stonewall Jackson's reluctance to move forward at a critical moment in the battle and apply pressure on the Yankees' right wing allowed the Federal commander to stave off complete disaster. And so, free to shift more troops from the right to the left, Pope and McDowell patched together an improvised line on the crest of Henry Hill. There, for the next two hours... In the fading daylight and then growing darkness, the divisions of John Reynolds and George Sykes, along with Milroy's and Schertz's brigades, joined rallied fragments of the decimated Federal left wing in repulsing a series of disjointed Confederate attacks. The sunken bed of the Manassas-Sudley Road at the bottom of the slope provided a measure of protection for the Federal defenders, while reserves and artillery batteries blazed away at the Confederates from the crest of Henry Hill. Neither Jones nor Richard H. Anderson's divisions of rebels were able to break the stubborn Yankee position, and as darkness settled over the battlefield, Pope began withdrawing his defeated army eastward toward Bull Run and Centerville. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. At 7 p.m., the Federals were finally yielding the southern portion of Henry Hill, but Robert E. Lee's last chance to destroy Pope's army had passed. Stonewall Jackson had finally begun moving four brigades against the retreating Union right wing, but there the Yankee troops north of the Warrenton Turnpike still were in good order, and besides, Jackson's advance was tentative at best. A greater threat to Pope's line of retreat came when Confederate cavalry, led by Beverly H. Robertson, fought their way through John Buford's Federal horsemen, who were guarding the southernmost portion of the Union line. Buford's stiff resistance, however, intimidated Robinson, and the rebel troopers failed to press their advance into the rear of Pope's army and to the crossings the retreating Yankees were using to get over Bull Run. In a retreat that was depressingly reminiscent of the aftermath of the Battle of First Manassas a year earlier, the beaten federal forces disengaged and withdrew across Bull Run to take up a new line to the east of the stream in the already prepared defensive positions around Centerville. As the survivors of Pope's debacle shuffled into these positions, they were mocked and jeered at by the men of William Franklin's Sixth Corps from the Army of the Potomac, whose belated arrival at Centerville bore witness to Franklin's lack of urgency in coming to Pope's aid, and was evidence of George McClellan's unwillingness to hasten troops forward to help Pope. As a tired soldier from the 21st Massachusetts trudged off the battlefield and passed Franklin's men, he noted that, quote, Some of the more frank among them, in plain English, expressed their delight at the defeat of Pope and his army. At the moment Franklin's men were taunting Pope's defeated troops, Robert E. Lee was sending glorious news to Richmond that at Manassas, the Confederate Army had won, in Lee's words, another, quote, signal victory. As we passed through Centerville on our retreat, I saw a sight I often think of. The surgeons were operating on the badly wounded as they were brought in from the field. Long rows of wounded men were lying around. Some had been operated on, while others were waiting to be. 
The surgeons were cutting off arms, feet, hands, and limbs of all kinds in what looked like a little country schoolhouse. And as an arm or leg was cut off, it was thrown out an open window, and a detail of a few men were hauling away the limbs in a wheelbarrow. It was an awful sight, and one I have never forgotten. It had the appearance of a human slaughterhouse. Private Charles H. Vale, 9th Pennsylvania Reserve Infantry, Hardin's Brigade. The Yankees had asked, under a flag of truce, permission to bury their dead and carry for, care for their wounded, which had been granted them. Captain MacDonald had been left behind to keep an eye on them while they performed this sad but necessary duty and to wait further orders. Captain MacDonald selected a place to camp, then for several days we rode over the battlefield and talked to the northern people, old men and their wives and daughters who had come out from Washington and from many of the northern states in search of fathers, husbands, sons, and brothers who were reported missing and supposed to be either dead, wounded, or prisoners. It was a sad, sickening sight to see those old fathers and mothers turning the dead who had fallen on their faces to see if it was their loved ones for whom they were in search. The object of their search was often found cold in death, then the scene was sometimes one calculated to melt a heart of stone. I saw hundreds, I might say thousands, of wounded men who had lain on that field of carnage for three days. Many of them could move a hand or make a sign, yet their tongue and throat was so dry and swollen they could not speak, though it was easy to understand that they were begging for water to quench their intolerable thirst. Lieutenant John M. Blue, 17th Virginia Cavalry Battalion, Robertson's Brigade. On the overcast and drizzly morning of Sunday, August 31st, John Pope pondered his next move as he tried to sort out the shambles of his beaten force at Centerville. As many as 13,000 Union soldiers had been killed, wounded, or were missing in the three days of the battle, and many regiments were still rounding up stragglers. But still, Pope had something in excess of 60,000 men on hand. Both Franklin's Sixth Corps and Edwin Sumner's Second Corps had arrived, or were arriving, and those fresh troops from the Army of the Potomac more than made up for those lost in action. Robert E. Lee's army had suffered some 8,700 casualties. Lee had failed to destroy Pope's army with Longstreet's grand assault, but nevertheless the Confederate commander was determined to maintain the initiative. Unwilling to risk an attack on the formidable enemy defenses at Centerville, Lee ordered Longstreet to hold Pope's attention while Stonewall Jackson's wing marched to the north and swung around the Federal right, moving behind the Yankees. Jackson's force would march on the Little River Turnpike toward Fairfax. That road intersected the Warrenton Turnpike atop a ridge at Germantown, seven miles beyond Centerville. If Jackson got there before Pope did, the Yankees would be cut off from Washington. Longstreet would follow Stonewall, as he had done successfully earlier in the campaign, and perhaps Lee could still achieve a decisive victory over John Pope. With A.P. Hill's division in the lead, Stonewall Jackson's hungry and tired soldiers slogged through the intermittent rain. But Jackson's men were simply too worn out to live up to their reputation for hard marching. 
Stonewall's force bivouacked for the night near the estate known as Chantilly. Jackson was aware that Federal scouts were shadowing his route and that surprise was therefore out of the question. In light of Lee's effort to strike at his line of retreat, Pope decided on September 1st to withdraw from Centerville to the forts and defenses around Washington and there reorganize his fractious and demoralized army. Pope himself remained at Centerville with a sizable rear guard as his troops began eastward on the Warrenton Turnpike toward Fairfax. Brigadier General Isaac Stevens led two divisions of the Ninth Corps to block Jackson's rebels on the Little River Turnpike before they reached the crossroad at Germantown. Late in the afternoon of Monday, September 1st, Stevens moved toward Ox Hill, southeast of Chantilly, where Stonewall's troops had halted to allow Longstreet's column to close up. The rattle of musketry and the deeper booms of cannon alerted Stonewall to the approaching danger, and he deployed his men south of the turnpike, where a confused battle erupted as the skies opened in a torrential downpour. With Stevens leading the assault, the regiments on the Union left charged across an open field and broke through Jackson's line near the junction of Alexander Lawton's and A.P. Hill's divisions. But then Stevens was shot dead, with the flag of his old regiment, the 79th New York, in his hands, and the Federals were sent reeling back. Fiery one-armed Major General Philip Kearney began rushing his division of the 3rd Corps north to support Stevens, and David Burney's brigade was soon locked in furious combat with A.P. Hill's Confederates along the edge of a large cornfield. With characteristic recklessness, Kearney galloped forward to rally Stevens' retreating soldiers. As lightning flashed and thunder cracked, Kearney spurred his horse into the cornfield, where in the driving rain and growing darkness, he mistook a group of Georgians for federal troops. As he turned his mount to make his escape, the rebels let loose a ragged volley, and Kearney was shot from his saddle to die a few minutes later. The firing soon sputtered out, and the opposing forces disengaged, with each side having lost some 500 men. The indecisive clash at Ox Hill, known in the north as the Battle of Chantilly, proved to be the concluding action of the Second Manassas Campaign. The outcome of the skirmish meant nothing, however, to the thousands of wounded left behind in the wake of the fighting on the Bull Run battlefield. The luckiest among them had been evacuated to dressing stations or field hospitals. Others had found their own shelter, cramming themselves into any structure with a roof between Gainesville and Centerville. But hundreds more, especially the Federal wounded, were alone with their agony, scattered all across the battlefield, beyond the reach of their medical services for days. With Pope's forces in retreat, and Lee determined to keep moving, too few men remained behind to deal adequately with all the casualties. The Confederates did manage to bury most of their dead, and some of the Union fallen, in shallow graves before they moved on. As usual, the large number of rebel wounded overwhelmed the Army of Northern Virginia's Medical Corps, and only a portion were evacuated to hospitals farther south. Many of the rest were tended by civilian doctors and parceled out to homes all across the area, where in the next few weeks many would be forced to play hide-and-seek with Federal cavalry patrols. On September 2nd, under a flag of truce, the first small Union rescue parties reached the battlefield, 
but not until the 4th was a real effort mobilized. By this time, those poor souls still alive were in wretched shape, starving, soaked by rains, and with wounds already festering. Over the next few days, hundreds of horse-drawn carriages and wagons, many of them civilian vehicles from the Washington area, hauled their miserable passengers back to overflowing hospitals in the capital. When John Pope completed his retreat back to Washington, he met with humiliation. Hailed by thunderous cheers from the troops, George McClellan rode out to assume command of the army, for Abraham Lincoln, faced with the gravest crisis of the war, saw no alternative but to place the Union forces in Northern Virginia back in the hands of Little Mac. In an impressive display of audacity and operational brilliance, Robert E. Lee had vanquished John Pope. Fired with confidence and buoyed with hope, Lee would, in short order, turn his army toward the Potomac River, determined to win a crowning victory on northern soil. Just three weeks after the Second Battle of Manassas, Lee's bold move would lead to the opposing armies facing each other outside the town of Sharpsburg in western Maryland, where, on September 17th, the bloodiest one-day battle in American military history would be fought in the woods and farm fields and rolling hills along Antietam Creek. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Second Manassas, Longstreet's Attack and the Struggle for Chin Ridge by Scott C. Patchen. Yeah, you know, we um, painted the battle and Longstreet's attack on Pope's left in pretty broad brushstrokes, just to keep things moving along. Uh, but if you're interested in reading in more detail about Longstreet's attack and the struggle for Chin Ridge, then we really can't recommend Patchen's book highly enough. It's an excellent tactical study that really gets down into the nitty-gritty of this phase of the battle. So that's Second Manassas, Longstreet's Attack and the Struggle for Chin Ridge by Scott C. Patchen. But wait, with this episode, we don't have just one book recommendation for you guys. We have two. Our second book recommendation for this episode is He Hath Loosed the Fateful Lightning, The Battle of Ox Hill, Chantilly, September 1st, 1862, by Paul Taylor. Uh, yep, we really just wanted to make you aware of this short book. Uh, it's only about 130 pages of narrative. But if you want to read more on your own about this clash that took place just after Second Manassas uh, at Ox Hill slash Chantilly, uh, which cost the Union the life of two promising generals, then do please check out Taylor's book. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 47, and we actually decided to continue the Charleston story arc after we've already done three shows on the Battle of Secessionville. So with episode number 47, uh, we're keeping that going a while longer. Uh, but we do want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Michael, Mario, and Ryan. Thanks, guys. 
Thanks also, as always, to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, which is the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Darkness had put an end to the conflict. The battle was over, and the firing had ceased when General Kearney left his line and rode alone to the front of the 49th Georgia. Evidently, he was trying to ascertain whether these men were friends or enemies, as there was some confusion on both sides caused by the growing darkness. When close to our line, he asked, What troops are those? His question was answered by a similar one concerning his own belonging. Discovering his mistake, he wheeled his horse and started to retreat. Captain John H. Pate of the 49th gave the order to fire on him. General Kearney bent low down on the neck of his horse, and as he did so, the bullet entered his body directly from the rear. He fell from his horse and died in a few minutes. It had rained that evening while the battle was in progress, and the night air was chilly to men in wet clothes. At the regimental headquarters we built a fire, and to this fire the dead body was brought. We knew by the uniform that it was a federal officer, but we did not know his name or rank. A federal captain who had been wounded and captured had been brought to the same fire. As soon as he saw General Kearney with his one arm, the other having been lost in the Mexican War, he told us who the dead man was. His body lay by that fire all night, a few hundred yards from where he fell. The next day, General Lee sent the body, under a flag of truce, to his own men. Major Washington L. Grice, 45th Georgia Infantry, Thomas's Brigade.